0: Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Happy Lord's Day to all of you. This should be our favorite day of the week. It's the one day where we kind of leave the world behind and we um, think on greater things than we normally do. So today is Module 5, Session 14. This is the last uh, session of Module 5. I'm just noticing that. Um, so if you're doing this for credit, you might look ahead to Module 6, which means... Uh, where's Jay? Um, the, Uh, Do you have the syllabus for Module 6, or do I need to send it to you? I can send it to them, yeah. You can? Okay, great. This is the week, then. I love that. This is the week, yes. Um, So today we're doing the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to um, walk through this. Uh, There's a lot to do, and so uh, forgive me if we keep a pretty good pace. Our Father, thank you for this day, which every Sunday, Lord, we're reminded that this is the day that the Lord Jesus Christ conquered death. God the Father raised him from the dead. God the Spirit raised him from the dead. And because of his deity and power, Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead. And so every Sunday we remember that what Paul said is true of us. Oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? And so we remember Christ today. We would focus our affections on Him. This Lord's Day, we would ask You, Lord, to help us to leave behind the cares of the world, the trials and sorrows and suffering that we endure, and that this day we would focus on our Savior and on our Lord, Jesus Christ, through His Word and through His people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God. ...having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways... ...in these last days spoke to us in his Son... ...whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds... ...who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature... ...and upholds all things by the word of his power... ...who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high... Having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers flaming fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That is the most unique beginning to any epistle in all of the New Testament. It just... You're just thrust immediately into content there's no hello how are you there's no uh, glad uh, for the the church's faithfulness there's no i'm thankful for you there certainly isn't any um explanation of who the author is it just jumps into content this is what preachers call a cold open where you just dive in and that's what the book of Hebrews does. It is, I think, the most unique opening to any New Testament um, epistle. And so I wanted to read that to you. We're going to come back and read some of those portions in a little bit with a different uh, focus. But today we're going to walk through the book of Hebrews. And, and again, the assumption is, is that there's some familiarity here. I'm not reading through the whole book. And, and first, I want to just show you a picture. <clears throat> Who knows what that is? Colosseum. All right. I knew somebody in here would. Um, big question is to whom was the book of Hebrews written? That gives you a hint. Who do you think? To the Hebrews. To the Hebrews living where? Rome. In Rome. That's right. Um, that that's our best guess. So I just threw that picture in there cuz I like uh, I like pictures. So, let's do some introductory work. And then we'll get into some uh, some of the richer issues. Uh, authorship. Author's not named. There's a really simple concept in th- that if God wants you to know who the author is, he's pretty clear about it. And so um, I don't think debates about authorship are really that useful, um, but we will look at just some of the debate just a little bit. We do know this is a Jewish member of Paul's ministry team, but it's not Timothy, and that's about as close as we can get. Hebrews 13:23 You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So we know it's not Timothy. There are some significant arguments for the apostle Paul, the obvious Jewish nature of the book. He would be the logical person to follow up the book of Romans uh, to a book written to believers in Rome. There's a Pauline structure, there's doctrine followed by duty, that's generally what he does in all of his letters, and there is a reference to Timothy. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but no other biblical writer writes of Timothy. So, that's a little evidence in favor of Paul. There is a fairly major piece of evidence not in favor of Paul, um, and that is Hebrews 2, verse uh, 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation... First spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard. That puts the writer in really the third generation of the church, not the first or second. So that would argue pretty hard against Paul. There are are arguments for other authors. Candidates include Barnabas, Clement, Silas, Apollos, and even Priscilla. But there's no author listed here. Um... And we would say this is a different style and pattern than all of Paul's letters. But there might be a reason for that. So Paul is still in the running. Uh, I don't know who wrote Hebrews and I'm not going to make a stand on it because it doesn't matter. That's not the point of the book. Um, But Paul is still in the running. But uh, we won't worry about it. Bigger issue is the audience. Obviously by the title of the book, the audience are predominantly Jews. And then, now, instantly we get into uh, some interpretive issues. We would say that the primary audience are Christians, because it includes warnings to those who believe themselves to be Christians, but haven't come all the way to faith in Christ. But, like all the epistles, the primary audience are believers. But we're going to dig into some detail about that, because Hebrews uh, really is one of the most evangelistic of all the letters. And it really is very gospel-focused. Hebrews 13.24 says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Um, this is a specific group. It's not written in Italy and it's emphasizing the Italians. So, um, they're, they're Jews, they're Christians. The majority position of most commentators then is that this is written to Jewish believers in Rome. And this would be uh, important because at this point in church history, Rome is the center of Christianity. It is where everything happens, and it's where um, things would happen for uh, centuries after that. Now, there's a little history that's important to know and might be helpful to you, and that is that in AD 49... Emperor Claudius, who wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer and he was, he was easily manipulated by others, uh, if you read a little Roman history, he issued a decree that all Jews had to leave Rome. There were 26 synagogues in Rome. So that that meant an exodus of thousands and thousands of people. Um, this was a big deal. This is right when Acts chapter 18 happens. Priscilla and Aquila had to leave Rome and they go to Corinth. Because they're kicked out of Rome. So when the Jews were told to leave, their property was up for grabs by anyone, including their homes. So this was devastating to them. And so any Jew left... Who would, who would not go around, who was, who was uh, decided to stay, they would not claim to be a Jew because it was too dangerous and it was illegal. And so at that point, Jews were making the choice, keep my property and pretend to, to not be Jewish or say that I am a Jew, I'm a follower of Yahweh and have to leave. And so any assembly of believers that was predominantly Jewish now had to leave. What did that include? That include all the Jewish Christians, all the believers um, who were Jewish. What does that leave? That leaves every single church now being run by Gentiles. Every single uh, iteration of the church, meeting of the church being run by Gentiles. So now the believers in Rome are are almost exclusively Gentile with maybe a few Jews had, who had returned. Romans addresses uh, contentions between Jewish and Gentile believers. So uh, eventually, uh, the Jews were allowed to return. But, but now, they weren't in charge anymore. And they were the, definitely the minority. And that's the situation we find in the book of Hebrews. So where would we date this? We would date it around 64 to 68 AD, written to a Jewish congregation in Rome. So that puts it 10, 15 years after Romans, somewhere in that vicinity. This is written to Jews who hadn't fully integrated themselves into the church as a whole. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that many of them did not obey Paul's admonition in the book of Romans. And so that they had stayed um, separate. Now in this particular time period, it's dangerous to be a Christian in Rome. Nero has come to power. There is a whole new conflict uh, based in suffering. Now it's not just uh, you might get kicked out. Now it's you might die for your faith. And that was a very real possibility. So now it wasn't you might die for being a Jew. It was or you might be kicked out for being a Jew. Now it's you might be you might die for being a Christian. So what would be the temptation for the Jew who said he was a Christian? The temptation would be to renounce his identity with Christ. In AD 49, it was dangerous to be a Jew. Now in the 60s, it was dangerous to be a Christian. And a Jew had, an, had an, an advantage. A Jew could prove that he's not a Christian by simply saying, No, I'm a Jew. Here's my heritage. Here's the synagogue I go to. Okay, well, we'll leave you alone because you're not a Christian. So that's the situation, and the book of Hebrews addresses that group as well um, very effectively. The book of Hebrews is very unique, and one of the reasons I read the opening to you is that it's not as much a letter even though we have it in the form of a letter, as it is an inspired sermon manuscript. It is a sermon. The author is basically saying, if I could be with you, this is what I would preach. And and it goes like a sermon. There's no greeting, there's no thanksgiving uh, like all the other epistles. It's a message to be read to all. And, And this is so valuable because this is the closest to what we have to what a sermon looked like in the New Testament church. In fact, one of uh, my professors in seminary said, I don't like to talk about the author of Hebrews, I prefer to talk about the preacher of Hebrews. That he is a preacher at heart. So it's a very unique book. So let's walk through some of the historical and theological themes with a a couple of uh, digressions. First major theme Old Testament. If you're going to write a letter to a bunch of Jews, what are you going to use? The Old Testament. You have many texts in their Hebrews usage, and this is, these are just some um, examples. Psalm 8 is used in Hebrews chapter 2. Psalm 95 is used in Hebrews 3. Psalm 110 in chapter 5, uh, chapter 7, twice. Uh, Psalm 110, by the way, is the most referenced Old Testament passage in the New Testament, and it's three times alone in Hebrews. Jeremiah 31 is used in chapter 8 and chapter 10. Psalm 40 is used in chapter 10. Habakkuk 2 is used in chapter 10. Proverbs 3 used in chapter 12. This is the New Testament epistle as far as quantity, not number of references, but as, as far as just quantity, words, uh, l- large s- chunks of Old Testament is is more saturated with Old Testament than any other book. Um, now, as far as specific separate references, Romans and Matthew actually comes out ahead slightly, but um, as far as just chunks of Old Testament... The Old Testament is coming out in Hebrews more than any other. And here's one little digression. I can't remember if I put this up here. No, I didn't. So this is part of our digression here. A long time ago, I went through the book of Hebrews to find out how to preach the Old Testament from the New Testament. And I, I came up with a list. This is, these are things I've learned as a preacher from the book of Hebrews. I mean, when you have a Holy Spirit-inspired sermon, you study that thing because you can't go wrong. If I say my sermon structure is just like Hebrews, then I know I'm right, right? So here's what I learned about preaching. And you don't have to write this down. It's just for your uh, interest or lack thereof. I don't know which. <laughs> The preacher of Hebrews is not afraid to read and quote lengthy passages from the Old Testament. We, on an average Sunday at Grace Bible Church, between Pastor Darren and myself, we try to read the equivalent of about two to three chapters of the Bible to you. And so we're not afraid to do that. That's what Hebrews did. Um, He wasn't afraid to quote some multiple times. Um, I've, I've read books on preaching that say, once you quote a verse once, you should never say it again. Well, the author of Hebrews would disagree with that. He takes the time to give the context of his quotes. Here's what was happening. Here's why this is important. He is clearly Christocentric in his preaching, meaning that, that his use of the Old Testament points us toward Christ. He saturates his message with the Gospel, using the Old Testament. I love this. He doesn't pander to unbelievers in his preaching. He warns them multiple times to repent. He assumes that there are unbelievers listening to this letter being read. He also warns believers to be obedient to Christ and he's not soft about it. He's just direct. He's not harsh. He's not soft. He's simply direct. He uses illustrations from Scripture itself. Those those are my favorite kind. Uh, Illustrations from Scripture are a double whammy because not only are you illustrating a point, you're also teaching more Bible. And so it gives you a double benefit. He begins with interest. He, He doesn't Tell a story about his grandmother. He jumps right into to to glorious doctrine. And so it's an interesting beginning. He ends with application. And he conveys a love for his audience, but he doesn't try to please them. Uh, That's so important. If you read through Hebrews, find one place where he's trying to please people. And he's not, ever. He's trying to please God. Which, ironically, is the best way to please people who want to hear the Word of God. You please God, the right people get pleased. So there's the theme of the Old Testament. Then you have the theme of the great God. I don't have time to do this, but we could use the book of Hebrews alone to construct an amazing theology proper. That God is great. We have the living God mentioned in chapter 3, chapter 9, 10, and 12. You have God as creator. Um, I I always chuckle at... uh, People who say, well, the first two chapters of Genesis are are questionable. And because we question them, then we question the account of creation. A few years ago, at our Steadfast Bible Conference, I preached a little mini-sermon. And one of the things I included was a list of every single place in Scripture that speaks of God as creating. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 are clearly... God as creator. You can't foist any sort of uh, theistic evolution on on the text of scripture. Because even if you don't believe Genesis 1 and 2, you have the other 70 odd passages in scripture to deal with uh, creation. So he's the living God. He's the creator. He's said to be a consuming fire. The, The final chapters of Hebrews are some of the most terrifying in all of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 10 says... That there is a point in time when an unbeliever is no longer offered grace for all eternity. That in this life God will decide that you have been offered the gospel enough times and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's terrifying. That is a gospel message that says don't wait. Don't think about this. Don't pray about it. There's no reason to pray about being saved. Just get saved. That's what the end of the book it, it, it reads like uh, the end of a Lord of the Rings movie. I mean, it's just it's just terrifying. There's fire and there's brimstone, in all kinds of places, but with a glorious Savior. And the sermon begins right up front. God has spoken to you in His Son. It just this glorious hope right up front. So the the great God, sixty eight times. I, I've often thought how, how uh, helpful to the church it would be to just preach on the doctrine of God from Hebrews. And it's on, my, it's on my list of things to preach through. If I did everything I want to preach through, I'd be 120 before we finish. But Then, of course, uh, really we get closer to the main focus of Hebrews, and that is the incomparable Son, Jesus Christ. He's called the Son of God twelve times. He's called the Christ twelve times. He is called Jesus thirteen times. Baker's dozen there. The Son of God. I just read this uh, opening passage to you that, that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he's spoken to us by the Son, which is infinitely better than the prophets. He is called the high priest. Chapter 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, and 9. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the, the, the importance of Jesus as the high priest, is he is the one who can stand between us and God, not just as a mediator, but as the sacrifice necessary. And so that theme happens over and over again. And, and two, put yourself in the, in the mind, in the heart of a Jew. What is one thing that Jews in the early church era, what would they miss? They would read their own history and they would go back and say... Oh, those days of glory when we had the tabernacle and the temple and we had the high priest and we had the days of sacrifice and we had, the, we had our Passover together and everybody gathered in Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people gathering three times a year. This glorious the, uh, theocracy, this nation ruled by God. And a major part of that was the high priest. And Israel hung their hopes on the high priest because once a year the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies to make atonement. For, all, for the sins of all the nation. And they, they hung their hopes on this. They didn't have that anymore. They were scattered all over the world. Their national identity just shot to pieces. And so when the writer of Hebrews says to a Jew, you have a high priest... Who has not just entered into the Holy of Holies made with hands, the little cute Lego model version that God put on earth, but He has entered into the true Holy of Holies on your behalf in heaven to make sacrifice for you. He is that sacrifice, and because of that, you may enter into the Holy of Holies. That's thrilling to a Jew. That is absolutely thrilling. We have the theme of the better. And I put some references up there, and I'm sorry for those that I'm standing right in the way of that. You can dodge your head, whatever you need to do. I put a bunch of references up there, just a couple of them. Hebrews 1, 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited and is more excellent than theirs. Chapter 6, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In chapter 7, Christ is better than the law. Chapter 12, he speaks a better word than sacrifices of the past. What the book of Hebrews is, if somebody asks you in one sentence, how can you summarize the book of Hebrews? Christ is better than everything. Even better than other things God has given. Better than the angels, better than the law, better than sacrifices from the past, better than Moses. Big old section on why Christ is better than Moses. You tell that to a Jew who practically worships the ground Moses walks on, and you prove your case, Jesus is better than Moses, that's a major apologetic point to follow Christ. I'll go faster with the next two. You have the theme of faith. And of course, where's the most famous faith section in Hebrews? It is what some call the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. This list of people who believed something from God, but never saw it in this life. You have the theme of encouragement. Now, let me be clear about this. Our English word for encouragement sounds a little therapeutic, right? Sounds a little... Uh, soft, And that's okay. There, there, there are times for that. There are times to put your arm around someone and say, I'm praying for you and, and I love you and I'm thankful for you. There are times to say you can do it. Um, if any of you have ever coached seven-year-olds, you, know, you don't scream at them and tell them that they're going to be cut from the team if they don't get it together. You, know, you say, you can do it. You have no genetic talent for the sport whatsoever, but you can do it. That's kind of how we think of encouragement. (laughs) Encouragement in the book of Hebrews is more like you must come to Christ or you're going to go to hell. You must, you must, you must. And giving all this evidence for Christ. I haven't had the courage to do this yet, but one of these days, and you'll all know it when it's happening, I'm going to stand up on a Sunday evening and I'm just going to read the book of Hebrews. And that'll be it. I have one vote in the front for that. So. <laughs> now, I'm fearful somebody would say, you just didn't want to prepare a sermon this week. But it's a, it's a glorious sermon. It truly is. Then you have the theme, and I, to go along with the encouragement, you have the theme of warning. And I want to spend a moment on this. There are five major warning passages in Hebrews. Some have argued for more, but there's five that we would all agree on. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Pay more careful attention to the message of the gospel. That's the, that's the warning of don't drift from the truth. The book of Hebrews is one of the reasons I don't mind preaching the gospel to a room full of people who all say they're Christians. Um, that I, I will never assume that anybody, everybody in the room is a Christian unless I'm on a date with my wife. That's about the only time I assume everybody in that room is a believer. Don't drift from the truth. Second major warning passage, chapter 3, verse 7 and following, beware of the hardening of heart and respond today. That's the warning. Don't ignore the Spirit of God speaking in His Word. Don't ignore this. The Spirit of God works in people and... We're not to ignore that. Now, how does that fit with regeneration? I don't know. I do know this, though. As a pastor, I've spoken to plenty of people who have who have said, I, I really sensed God was trying to get me to Christ and trying to get me saved, but I just decided it wasn't for me. And what I tell them is, is that the Holy Spirit is trying to get a hold of you and you're resisting the Spirit. I, I'm not trying to explain the theology of regeneration versus free will and all of that. I'm just telling them, you're resisting the Spirit of God because that's what Hebrews says. There's a third warning passage, chapter 5, verse 11 and following. Beware of coming close to salvation, but not coming to full faith. The forgiveness will not be offered again. So that's the warning. Don't become bad listeners and learners. I will never forget... um, at orientation week uh, when I entered the Master Seminary and uh, John MacArthur came in and was talking about Grace Community Church their church and he, he said something like maybe it was at, a, another, uh, at the Grace Advance Academy I don't remember but I'll never forget this he said here at Grace Community Church you will find some of the godliest believers you'll ever have the privilege of being around people who love the Lord Jesus Christ at a level as deep as possible any pastor will say that but then he said and you will find some of the most wicked, hateful, heinous people who have been sitting listening to the gospel for 25 and 30 years and have not come to faith in Christ. That's the warning in Hebrews. Don't become bad listeners and learners. Don't be those that, that begin to gloss over the truth and just show up and become religious. Chapter 9, verse 19 and following. Hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. That's the, the warning. Don't ignore the knowledge of the truth. The truth of the gospel is logical, it is provable, it is, it is completely intellectually sustainable. When somebody ignores the truth, it's not because it's not believable, it's because they don't want it. And that's a very clear distinction that Hebrews makes. Don't ignore the truth. There's a fifth warning. Chapter 12, beginning of verse 18, don't refuse the message of Christ. That is, don't ignore the warnings. And I, I said a moment ago, the end of the book of Hebrews, just, it, it just is epic in its warnings. So you have to understand that there are underlying repeated warnings in Hebrews. And the warning is this, Jesus is great, ignore him at your own risk. And I, I think this is so important to go against the whole um, false gospel, which says, would you like to have a relationship with Jesus? And some of you might be going, wait, that's, I thought that was the gospel. That is not the gospel. Every human being has a relationship with Jesus. The difference is, some will be related to him as, his, as their savior. Most will be related to him as their judge. So relationship... It has nothing to do with it. What kind of relationship? Jesus is great. He's not your best friend. He's not a buddy. He's not your co-pilot. He is the judge of all people. And you ignore him at your own risk. You think about Jesus on earth... And how the children were so comfortable with him, they would run up and sit on his lap and he would bless them. Can you imagine having your child blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ? I, we don't know what that means exactly. In my mind, that means that means guaranteed salvation. When the, chi- when the child is blessed by the Savior of the world, your child is going to be saved. But then you contrast that with the... Terrified response of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation when he's confronted by the glorified Jesus Christ. Um, you, You cannot ignore Jesus. You cannot make a Jesus of your own making who is just a really nice guy who walked the earth a long time ago and set an example for us. And then, of course, you have the theme of today. Three times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's mostly used in the context of the warning passages. So those are the historical and theological themes. Let's look at the literary structure. Is that what we're on? Yes. The literary structure of itself is an interpretive issue. How did the author organize this? It's actually, you can organize this book in, in about a hundred different ways, it seems like, and so we don't worry about it a lot, but we'll just give you some details here. Some feel it's organized like a typical Pauline epistle. You have doctrine in chapter 1 through most of chapter 10. You have uh, exhortation or duty followed, following that in chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to the end of the book. Um, that's viable but there's a lot of exhortation in the first section and a lot of doctrine in the second section also so you kind of have to put those lenses on to see that others feel it's organized by virtue of the various themes it presents and that's um, that certainly makes sense that there are themes here and there and you could organize it that way Uh, I have found that this is an amazing book for preaching I haven't preached through every verse of Hebrews I preached through a lot of passages in Hebrews but you could you could preach it in one sermon it would be the easiest preparation ever like I said just read it and any commentary we give would really take away from it but it's an inspired sermon so I've thought it'd be fun to preach it chapter by chapter in 13 weeks that's possible because every chapter is a very clear theme you could take it topic by topic I, I went through once and did a little survey of what topics we could do and I came up with 36 and so that's we could preach it topically um, but I would say and I get asked this question a lot what, what book is most intimidating in the New Testament to preach? Most people think Revelation i preach Revelation three times that's not intimidating, Hebrews is the most intimidating um, the, the, the Greek is complex, the structure is complex, the message is lo- high and lofty so there's a lot of reasons to um, keep avoiding that for a little while at least so that's the literary structure what's the purpose? Jewish Christians and possibly false converts, we'll get into that in a minute, who were considering safety in Judaism were instructed and exhorted to progression, steadfastness, endurance, and maturity by looking to Jesus, the Son of God and great high priest, the better way. You see why preaching Hebrews would be a a, a task? That's just the purpose. One more time, Jewish Christians and possibly false converts who were considering safety in Judaism were instructed and exhorted to progression, steadfastness, endurance, and maturity by looking to Jesus, the Son of God, and great high priest, the better way. So, let's look at the, some interpretive issues and we're going to come back to the warning passages again. First interpretive issue. And this is the biggest one. How Hebrews uses the Old Testament. This has been a major debate for quite some time. At the 2001 Evangelical Theological Society meeting, um, Dr. George Guthrie presented a paper called Old Testament in Hebrews. And he calls Hebrews the Cinderella of the New Testament. In other words, the last one to come to the ball in terms of understanding and, and study. The Hebrews was not studied as much as other books until more recently. And he says this. I'm going to read you a long quote from Dr. Guthrie. If Hebrews is a Cinderella, then her uses of the Old Testament are her bones... Then her uses of the old, and her hermeneutic, rather, her marrow. We find quotations, allusions, and echoes at every turn, often presented with rabbinic techniques and ornamented with features of rhetorical style. Thus, to attempt to study any portion of Hebrews without consideration of the author's hermeneutical system, without recognition of the ways in which he utilizes his Old Testament text, and the ends to which those ways lead, is likely to be a misguided, or at least an incomplete, or at least uh, or at least an incomplete exercise. What does that mean? It means that, um, let me put it to you this way, I'm, I'm a simple person. You ever take your car to the shop and you think you're having the oil changed? And then um, he says, by the way, just so you know, your alternator shot and uh, you need a new transmission and this and that. Oh, $50 just turned into 5000 really fast. That's what happens when you study Hebrews. Oh, look, this verse, isn't that cool? It gives an Old Testament quote. Five hours later, you're finding yourself dug into this text in the Old Testament going, what did it mean then? What does it mean to the writer of Hebrews? And, and I don't know how this turned out. It's just the Lord's will. But I'm going to spend significant time later this morning talking about the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So we'll do that later in the worship service. What's the main thing we would say? The main thing we would say is that the book of Hebrews is best understood if you know the Old Testament. And, every single time the book of Hebrews uses the Old Testament, it is always in the same context as the Old Testament usage. Every time. So what does that mean? It means that there's not a contradiction. It means that our brothers who are covenant theologians who say that the New Testament reinterprets the Old, they have a difficulty with the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews does no such thing. And that has been demonstrated by some great scholars. So how does Hebrews use the Old Testament? Put it this way: the genius of the Book of Hebrews is that it never asks Jews to believe the New Testament. It preaches the gospel from the Old Testament. So yeah, that's genius. Um, I had a when I was in, living in Santa Clarita, we had a, a Jewish person who did our our dry cleaning, and I didn't really want dry cleaning, but she was an old Jew, and I, I wanted to keep sharing Christ with her. And so I would bring her passages from Isaiah and say, what do you think of this? I never talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John or any of that because that would have shut her down. But she, uh, I, I asked her, how do you explain God talking to God in Isaiah 49? And she said, oh, we skipped that chapter because it speaks of a Savior who is God. And so we, we, don't, we don't do that one. That's what she said. Then there's the issue of the warning passages. What's challenging about Hebrews is the audience. Is the author speaking only to regenerate true believers or is he speaking to believers as well as those who are not saved? Let's go through some possibilities. Is this speaking of a true Christian's loss of salvation? Is that what the warning passages are? This would contradict the plethora of passages which indicate the permanence of salvation. So that can't be it. Some say it's a true Christian's loss of reward. That sort of makes sense until you get to chapter 10 and it warns of impending judgment and hellfire. And that doesn't make sense anymore. Some would say that this speaking of near Christians, somebody who's around Christians, doing Christian things, um, near Christians may be where both the church and the person know that, that this isn't a believer um, but they're, they're, they're close. They're around. Um, we, have, we have people in our own church who bring unsaved spouses to church. And that, that would be the near Christian. Some of these are around believers. And we, we love that. And we appreciate that. Or it could be the apostasy of professing Christians. That you have professed Christ. 2 Peter 2.20 says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. What's that speaking of? That for, out, but the, by outward appearances, somebody appears for a period of time to be a believer, but then they fall away. And 2 Peter says, They're in worse shape the second time around. Because now they have, they have come to the knowledge of Christ. Not saving knowledge, but intellectual knowledge, and rejected this. Do we have examples of this other, elsewhere in scripture? 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 warns about those who name the name of Christ, who claim to be brothers and yet continue in, in unrepentant sin. And there's lists of sins. Sexual immorality, adultery, uh, reviling, and so forth. That That person eventually, whether we do as a church, we treat them as if they're an unbeliever because it seems that they were never saved. So the near Christians view, that's uh, that's John MacArthur's view that that makes sense somebody who's around the church a lot the professing Christian but who's not actually saved that's, that's another view my own personal view is that the book of Hebrews adequately covers speaking both to near and professing Christians as a pastor I've seen both of them in the church um, it, it's, it's a precious thing the near Christian the, the person that um, I've sat with couples and had a a husband or wife openly say now so and so here does not profess Christ and that person agrees no I don't. But I really like coming. Everybody's nice to me and and I like hearing the the lectures. I hate it when they call sermons lectures but that's a um, I, I like learning. Great. Praise the Lord. But I've also seen professing Christians the ones that you don't know why they're so difficult you don't know why when the church says A they say B when the Bible says A they say B you don't know why you end up in battles with them and you don't know why you end up disciplining them out of the church because they would rather have an adulterous affair than follow Christ and yet they name the name of Christ that's a professing Christian I think the book of Hebrews scares the bejabbers out of both near and professing Christians and it does the the trick for, for all those categories But let me dig down into this just for a moment. And I've preached this passage about three times at Grace. I'll just give you an example of a warning passage. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And in my notes it's still in the English Standard Version. So we'll avoid the LSB just this one time. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What does that sound like? I I grew up in Arminian circles that Hebrews 6 was like the favorite passage to preach about every third Sunday. About you need to come back to Jesus. You need to you need to reaffirm your faith. You need to rededicate your life to Christ. Anybody ever been in a context where everybody's rededicating their lives? What does that even mean? Sounds like loss of salvation, doesn't it? But none of those phrases been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. None of those phrases are used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of a saved person. This is somebody who's around saved people, who is in the vicinity of Christians, not one who is regenerate. We would also say that the author switched pronouns to those and them. That's pretty... He goes from us to those... And then back to us. So that's, that's some evidence there. It's not the greatest evidence, but it is part of the argument. And it indicates that God will not always abide with one who plays with Christianity. This is the most dangerous thing a human being can do, is to try Jesus. I've seen billboards that say, try Jesus. There's no trying Jesus. You don't take Jesus for a spiritual test drive. What the, what the book of Hebrews says, if you try Jesus, he's going to throw you out and never let you in. You come to faith in Christ. Um, Dwight L. Moody is famous for holding his evangelistic meetings and he held one in Chicago. And he said, I want you to come back at our next meeting and I want you to think about coming to faith in Christ. And I want you to just, just think about um, coming to salvation. And he wrote later that that was the worst thing, his biggest regret in the ministry, because that's the night that Chicago burned and many of the people in that meeting died. And he said, never again. I will always say, come to Christ now. Where do we see that in Hebrews? Today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice. So, are the warning passages telling us that you might lose your salvation? No, that contradicts the rest of Scripture. Jesus said that that he will not let one be snatched out of his hand. There's no such thing as losing your salvation any more than a butterfly can turn into a caterpillar again. But the warning is don't play christian don't play church don't play with christ don't play with god's people don't don't see the church as some sort of social institution the irony is is that the church the local church that tries to please unbelievers and tries to make unbelievers feel very comfortable and ease them toward the gospel. They never make it to the gospel. Um, the irony is is what they're actually doing is pandering to those who fit the Hebrew 6 category instead of begging and pleading and, and saying, some of you here are not in Christ and you could walk out this parking lot and have a heart attack right now. I, I, I don't read a lot of news, but I seem to have noticed lately a trend of 17, 18, and 19-year-olds dropping dead. I don't know if you've seen that athletes and artists and musicians just dropping dead, and for no apparent reason. Um, I have my theories, and I won't say the word vaccine out loud. But uh, <laughs> but you can't say uh, you can't say, oh well, I'll be fine. I have time. The book of Hebrews doesn't let us do that. And a church that panders to, you need to just slowly come to Christ. No, that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is you run to the cross right now while there's time. So, I want to do one little note for you. I believe that the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and you can follow along with me and we'll finish with this. The book of Hebrews chapter 1. In my mind at least. For whatever that's worth. This contains. The greatest single passage in all of the New Testament. On the deity of Christ. Now yes you can argue. Well, what about John 1.1. Uh, you know, in the beginning was the word and so forth. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't care about that argument. But I just want to show you a progression here. Chapter 5. Or verse 5 rather, I'm sorry. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is God speaking. For to, the, to which of the angels did he ever say, Here's God speaking, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's quoting Psalm 2. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, this is God speaking, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, verse 7, he says, This is God speaking. Who makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire? But of the sun, he says, This is God speaking. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, that's me, your God, has appointed you, that is God, with the oil of gladness above your companions. You cannot get away from this. This is God the Father calling the Son God. God would never do that in any other case unless it was true. So, that you, you can, if somebody has trouble with the deity of Christ, walk them through the first seven verses. and verse 5, now who's speaking here? Well, God is. Read in verse 6. Who's speaking here? God is. Verse 7. Who's speaking here? God is. Verse 8. But of the Son, He says, who's about to talk? Well, God is. Your throne, O God. And who's He speaking to? To the Son. You cannot deny that. You cannot deny that. It's a precious lady who um, was saved in our church a number of years ago. And, and um, they're not here anymore. But um, she grew up in Jehovah's Witnesses. And this was a, a, a hang-up for her. And I'll never forget this conversation. We did that exact thing. We just walked through Hebrews 1. And if you've ever seen a cartoon of a jaw dropping, that's what happened with her. Just this instant. That's God. And it blew her mind, and she came back a week or two later and said, "I have been denigrating the very one I ought to have been worshiping." And so that's it. I just if you if somebody uh, corners you and says, "Can you prove that Jesus is God?" Yes, I can. There is a very clear passage in Hebrews one will do it, and it's great because it's it kind of hooks you in. Who's speaking God? Who's speaking God? Who's speaking God? Who's about to speak God? Your throne, O God. Uh Uh-oh, can't get away from that one. So I just wanted to show you that, that God speaks. Um, By the way, in verse 10 of chapter 1, God acknowledges that the Son is the Creator also. That's a little extra bonus there. Well, uh, we got through the whole book of Hebrews. I can't believe we did that uh, all in one day. Um, I've got time for a couple of questions, and then we'll pray.